2 Corinthians chapter 13. And I want to just begin by reading verses 1 through 10 together. Paul writes this, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Now this morning we're going to be addressing, actually for the next two mornings, Sunday mornings, we're going to be addressing a, um, a very serious and a very sensitive subject so I want us to pause because we truly do need the Lord's help in uh, working through this in a way that is helpful to our souls and convicting, but not shedding fears and condemnation to heart. So uh, would you pray with me and ask for the Holy Spirit's help in this time? Dear Lord, we just humble ourselves before Your Word right now. And we humble ourselves before You. And we ask You for the searchlight of Your Holy Spirit to search deeply in our hearts and minds. Father, as we navigate this subject, I pray that, Father, You will bring assurance to those who are rooted in the faith, and let their hearts sing with assurance. And Lord, any who might be listening who are not in the faith, I pray that You would bring strong but loving conviction. And so we just ask You, God, Holy Spirit, do the work that You do. And Lord, we pray that Jesus' name will be lifted up above all other names in our midst. For it's in His precious name we pray. Amen. This past Tuesday at our Thrive meeting, Ashley Bowers led the teaching for the older kids, and she taught us from Proverbs chapter 1. And in the course of the discussion, the word prudence was talked about. 
And one of the definitions, the one that, that Ashley brought forward, uh, definitions of prudence, is this. The quality of wisdom that takes into account the future consequences of one's behavior. Prudence is that aspect of wisdom that looks ahead. It, it asks what the future holds. Prudence is not content to say, what do I want right now? Prudence is not content to say, what will feel good right this minute? Prudence looks ahead and says, where will this lead? Where will this behavior take me? Where will this line of thinking take me? What will this, um, this uh, attitude lead me to? And so, prudence is saying, how does this affect my future? That's prudence. Now listen, we have seen over and over again, Paul loves the Corinthian church. He loves them dearly. He loves them deeply. But out of that love, he now asks them to consider the most important future-oriented question of all. Examine yourselves to see whether you are truly a Christian. That's what he means in verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Am I a Christian or am I not? And since our eternal destiny literally lies at stake, there is no more important question that could be asked. But before we jump into it, I want us to remember the context. Again, Paul loves this church. He founded this church. He spent a year and a half preaching to them and loving them and, and discipling them. He then wrote them a letter. Then he visited them. It was a hard visit, that second visit. Then he wrote a severe letter to them. So there's history. There's history. But in the final analysis, there are some very unhealthy things going on in this church. There is ongoing sin. There's rebellion. There is an openness to false teachers bringing a false Jesus. And this has made it necessary for Paul to come to them and urge them to examine themselves deeply and honestly to see whether they are truly in the faith. This comes after... Some, we don't know the number, but some in this church have mocked Paul as timid and weak. They've scorned him as two-faced. They've ridiculed him and said he's impressive when he writes a letter, but in person, not that impressive. At the same time, we just saw in chapter 12, there is a... a, a an amount, we don't know how much, but there are those in the church whose lives are characterized by sins like jealousy, anger, gossip, slander, and immorality. And that has affected the church so that there is at least some degree of toxicity in the air that's full of jealousy, anger, divisions, hostility, 
slander, gossip. There are people who hate each other in the church, who talk against each other, whose, whose lips are constantly tearing each other down. On top of that, their lives are practicing immorality. Now Moses commanded that when an accusation is brought to someone, it must be with one, with two or three witnesses. What Paul is saying here in his apostolic authority is I warned you once, I've warned you twice, this third time, I am coming in the power of Jesus Christ, and I will not spare those who ignore my warnings, my third warning. You see, Paul's apostolic authority is given to build up. He, he's, he's got the heart of God. He has no desire to be tearing people down, tearing churches down, ripping peoples apart. His authority is given to build up. But when it is necessary, he has the authority and the power to discipline severely. And what Paul is saying here is, I have come in a weakness, I have come in a tenderness that you have misdiagnosed as weakness, but he compares it to the weakness of Christ who came in weakness and humility, even humbling Himself to the weakness of the cross in order to save us. But that weakness is not weakness. It displays the power of God. And what Paul is saying here is that weakness that I have come to you in, that weakness of Jesus Christ is now the power of God and you don't want to be on the wrong side of the power of God. You question whether I'm an, an apostle, I will come in the power of Jesus Christ and there will be no more questions. It's a severe... He's ending this letter with a severe warning. And so he says, Examine yourselves before I come and examine you in the power and the judgment of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Someone might ask, is it right to ask ourselves whether we are truly a Christian? Is that whether we're truly saved? Is that, is that a good question to ask? Doesn't the very question express doubt when we are saved by faith? Doesn't the question express a lack of faith? I want to share this. It is biblical and prudent to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. And here's where it becomes sensitive. Because God does not want His children living in a place of uncertainty. God does not want His children living with a sense of insecurity. Am I God's child? Or am I not? God does not want us living with doubts and fears. Nor does God want us constantly examining ourselves to see, in effect, and this is where examination could go wrong, 
Am I doing enough? Am I Christian enough to be saved? So here's where my the pastor's heart wants to be very careful because I know the people who are the most sensitive to these kinds of insecurities and fears will be the ones who are possibly shaken and shuddered by that question. And conversely, I think historically, the people who are the the, who need to ask the question the most will sit and their hearts will not be affected and not wonder. So our Heavenly Father wants His children to live with a deep and unshakable assurance that we are His and He is ours. But only if the reality is that He is ours and we are His. Only if that's the reality. God doesn't want His children living in uncertainty, but He also doesn't want those who are lost living with a false sense of security. Paul is looking at the toxic sinfulness of some in the church. Toxic sinfulness. Lack of grace. Abundance of unrepentant sin. Openness to heresy. And he's got to ask them this question Examine yourselves. Are you really Christians of those who are in that place? Don't just assume there is too much at stake. Examine yourselves. But Paul encourages the entire church. These Scriptures have come down to us today to ask that question. He doesn't say some of you. He says all of you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And he assumes... And this is really important. He assumes that they are in the faith. With all the problems going on in Corinth, all the immorality, all the... I mean, we looked at it last week. Can you imagine? Listen, there's such a thing as unhealthy churches, but can you imagine if you walk into a church and what you see is jealousy, hostility, anger, gossip, slander, sexual immorality... I think any one of us would begin to wonder, what have I stumbled into here? Yet Paul assumes that this church is filled with believers because he immediately says, don't you realize that Jesus is in you? He's calling them to understand who they are in Christ. You should be living better. You should be more holy. These things should be getting less and less rather than growing and growing. You should be more mature. Unless, he adds, you fail the test. So I know that there are Christians who struggle with assurance. I wonder if all of us at some point struggle with assurance. I wonder if every believer at some point struggles with doubt. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I know I certainly have. And there is an unhealthy way to examine ourselves that would only increase all of that. We could so focus on our sins and our failings our weaknesses, our struggles. 
that we could begin to feel certain that we aren't in the faith. That we don't belong to Jesus. That Jesus isn't in us. There is a way to self-examine that would only lead to greater doubt. And that would shake our faith. And that's not what Paul is asking for here. For the believer, properly examining ourselves will lead to a deeper assurance that we belong to Christ and He to us. Examining ourselves will deepen and strengthen our faith and deepen the cords of love that bind us to Jesus Christ. For the unbeliever, examining themselves is a hope that it that God will in His mercy awaken the heart, the hard heart, to their need and their state and awaken them to repentance and a holy fear of God before it's too late. On the Niagara River, there are signs that warn boaters about the impending falls. And these signs, if you've ever been there, you see them. The signs begin far up the river, well before the current becomes dangerous. Those signs are posted on the sides and in the water when the water is still calm. And you could be just kind of still moving along and saying everything is good. But the, the signs become more and more urgent. Stop. Turn around. Go no further. This is danger. Danger. The signs are posted upward, upriver where it's still calm. They are not posted down by the falls where at that point it's too late for you to do anything about it. And so Paul is looking, and again, this is so, but there are some in the church who are in the church but are not in Christ. And Paul is saying to them, man, you got to wake up. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And if a soul is headed for eternal damnation, their best friend is a sign that says, turn around, wake up, repent, and come back to God. That's their best friend. It would be foolish for them to be bothered by the sign and not bothered by the reality. Examine yourselves now, Paul says. There is a a health in this because Paul will often make sweeping statements to the church of promises that God gives. And then he will put in a conditional word. I want to read a few. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. There's some wonderful assurance in that. Um, If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. There's no like, oh, I need the Holy Spirit. I'm a Christian, but I don't have the Holy Spirit. No, that's impossible. 
If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, we can walk in the Spirit more, or we can walk in the Spirit less, but if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying, if you don't have the Spirit, you do not belong to Christ. It's very clear cut. You are not in the Spirit if the Spirit is not in you, is what he's saying here. Romans chapter 11, verse 22, he says this, Note then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. And then he says this, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. Let's just pause right there. Isn't that beautiful? Believer, isn't that beautiful? We have been reconciled to God by Christ's death so that we are presented to God holy in His sight without blemish. Without blemish. And free from accusation. You know what that means, believer? When we stand before God, Satan, the accuser, that's what his name means. He's going to try to accuse and accuse and accuse. You did this. You did that. You're not enough this. You're not enough that. Some of us hear that voice today, don't we? But when we stand before God, God is going to say, my son died for those sins. There is no accusation. There is no accusation. I will brook no accusation against my child. That's the beautiful promise Paul lays out here. No blemish, no accusation. But then he says the word in verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move. Do not move from the hope held out in the Gospel. These words, if and provided, express conditions necessary for the promise to apply to us. We are not in the Spirit if the Spirit is not in us. We live in the awesome kindness of God unless we turn away from that kindness and discontinue in the faith that makes God's kindness possible. And we're going to talk in a minute about the question, can a believer lose their salvation? What does it mean to discontinue in the faith? But I want us to consider two important aspects of our faith that we should examine and that for the believer is a blessing to examine. And we're only going to really touch on the second one this morning and talk about it more next week. We're going to spend most of our time on the first aspect of our faith we want to examine. And that is examine the root of your faith. And next week we'll look more at examine the fruit of your faith. But this morning, primarily, examine the root of your faith. What is our faith rooted in? No. 
Paul asks us to get personal with this. What is your faith rooted in? What is my faith rooted in? Forget the person next to you. This is not a time to look and say, hey, group test here. Can I look over your shoulder on this test? This is a very personal examination. What is your faith rooted in? Is it rooted firmly in Christ and Christ alone? Do you place all your confidence in God justifying you through faith in Christ and have no confidence in your good works, your efforts, anything you bring to the table being a part of what justifies you in the eyes of God. What is the root of our faith? Justification is that sweet doctrine. That sweet, sweet doctrine that says when we trust in Christ, when we believe in Jesus Christ, our sins, all our sins, were imputed to Christ as though He were the guilty one. As He hung on that cross, He bore our cross. When we believe in Christ, our sins are imputed to Him. Not imparted to Him. He didn't become sinful, but they were imputed to Him as if He was sinful. And all His righteousness was imputed to us as if it is our righteousness. At that moment that you believe in Christ, that is justification. You don't grow in justification. You don't get more justified. 100% of our sins were imputed to Christ. 100% of His righteousness is imputed to us so that in God's eyes, you are the righteousness of Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. You add nothing to that except believing in Jesus. Is that what your faith is firmly rooted in? If it is, let hallelujah rise in your heart. Let your heart sing with assurance. Because to question that isn't to question how you're doing. It's to question Jesus and His sufficiency. And He is sufficient. Amen. The false apostles were teaching a devilish doctrine. This wasn't like close to Christianity. Little sub you know, version of Christianity. It was a devilish doctrine straight out of the pits of hell that Jesus Christ began the work of salvation on the cross and now we complete it by obeying the law of Moses. They were moving people away from confidence in Christ and moving them toward some confidence in Christ. I like that. Jesus did some of the work. And now you do some of the work. That sounds fair. That sounds right. It sounds you know, even. He does some of the work. We do some of the work. It appealed to some of them in Corinth, but it is a devilish doctrine and it empties the cross of Christ of its power to save. The minute we hold on to anything that we do to save ourselves, we empty the cross of its power to save. Because His salvation is His work and His work alone. And that there were some in Corinth on top of the sexual immorality, the gossip and the slander, who were listening to heresies 
that we're moving them away from Christ, has Paul lovingly say, examine yourselves, guys. Examine yourselves and come back to Jesus and get away from that stuff. Now, we see in Scripture that one of the conditions of salvation is continuing in the faith or continuing in God's kindness. And that raises the question, can we be saved by faith and then lose our salvation by discontinuing in the faith? And I'm going to share my thoughts and I'm not going to go into as many Scriptures as we could to back this up, but there are many Scriptures. I do not believe that a person can lose, a Christian can lose their salvation. I do not believe in any way that a Christian can lose their salvation. First of all, first of all, this is just my own personal opinion. That doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense. I feel like you're you're emptying the word saved of all of its meaning when you say somebody was saved and then lost their salvation. Because what does it mean to be saved? I'll tell you what it means to be saved. It doesn't mean feeling good now and going to church and singing songs and loving Jesus now. It means to be saved means that you belong to Jesus Christ, that you will spend eternity with God, that you have been saved from the hellfire, the lake of fire, and you have been saved for eternity and will spend eternity as a son or daughter of God. That's what it means to be saved. So to say somebody got saved but ends up spending eternity in hell, it's like, okay, well, that doesn't make sense. By definition, they weren't saved. Jesus Himself assures us that He will lose none of those who come to Him. John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40 And this is the will of Him who sent Me, that I shall lose none of those, none of those He, the Father, has given Me, but raise them up at the last day. For My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. None of those shall be lost everyone. The Father's will is that everyone, that's the Father's will, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life and shall be raised up on the last day. Now, I hope that makes your heart sing, brothers and sisters. I hope your heart sings with that. But what about those that we've probably all known someone who's professed faith in Christ and then come to church, looked every bit of Christian, and then walked away or drawn away by some other teaching or some other ideology. This is my belief. First of all, believers do sometimes backslide. Believers do sometimes stray. Amen? I mean, come on. And so we have a beautiful parable where Jesus says, if one sheep leaves the fold, the 99, I go after him. So I believe that a true believer They may stray. I've strayed. Many of you have strayed. But Jesus' love for us doesn't say, okay, you strayed. I'm done. He comes after us. Anyone who's truly a believer, they will come back to Christ. They will come back to Christ. Not maybe, they will come back to Christ. 
And those who walk away from Christ and never return were never truly saved, never truly believers. They didn't, they weren't saved. It's not that they were saved and lost their salvation. They were never saved. And the walking away forever reveals they were never saved. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. What John is saying, he's talking about some who, who were in the church and then went out from the church, but left. And he says, the discontinuing in the faith, the leaving, makes it plain they were never in the faith. They may have gone out from us, but they were never of us. <clears throat> discontinuing in the faith, walking away from Jesus Christ, is evidence that whatever grace touched a person's life, it wasn't saving grace. It may have been on the way, they may have been on journey, but it was not saving grace. They may have been close, but they were never saved. It's not that they lose their salvation because they fall away from Christ. It's that falling away from Christ reveals they were never saved. And the warnings to continue in the faith are to remind us that if the grace of Christ has gripped us, it will never let us go. Ever. Ever. When we read about discontinuing, or falling away from the faith, our hearts should not say, well, can I discontinue in the faith and still be saved? Can I walk away from Jesus? and still?" Our hearts should say, I'm never, never going there. Never going there. That warning is beautiful to me because it reminds me Christ is precious to me. I'm never, I may stray, I may wander, I may fall, I may fail. I'm never walking away from Christ. And that is saving grace. Be bold and say something to this to, to all here and those watching I want to say this to put a resolve in your in your blood and steel in your blood and iron in your backbone if anyone or anything or any teaching can talk you out of your faith in Christ if you're open to something better coming along if Jesus is the best you've seen, but if something better comes along, you're open to moving into that. You're not a Christian. Absolutely not a Christian. You have not tasted of the preciousness of Christ. You see, Christianity is not just, I believe some information about God, and if something better comes along, some philosophy, some teaching that seems more rational and more, you know, then I'm open to moving along with that. You're not a Christian because Christianity is you have tasted of the Lord and known He is good. You have eaten of His body and drunk of His blood. You have known the grace of God. You've known the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is more precious than life. You have put your hand to the plow and you're not saying I'm going to plow until I find a better field and then I'll move into that field. No, if you have any inclination that man, if somebody comes along and convinces me of something better, which is what these false apostles were doing, if they can move you from Christ, you are not a Christian. 
So move towards Christ and say in your heart, nothing will move me from my faith in Christ. I may blow it. I may be weak. I may not be serving Him the way I should. I need to grow in all these things. We'll talk about that next week. But I am never going to walk away from Jesus Christ because He has the words of eternal life. To whom will we go? Who are you going to go to? That. Christ is my Savior and I will not be moved. Now, as we, do you notice what's missing in this examination, in a sense? You are. I am. We're not examining ourselves. Are you? I haven't been saying, are you enough this? Are you enough that? Are you good enough? you go to church often enough? Do you read your Bible often enough? Are you praying long enough? Are you witnessing? I'm, you notice I haven't said any of that? It's Christ. It's Christ. It's what we believe about Him. It's what our faith is about Him. It's rooted in Christ. That's the root of the Christian faith, brothers and sisters. Christ. We are saved by Christ through faith. We are justified by Christ through faith. We are made alive to God by, through, by faith in Christ. We are redeemed and reconciled to God by faith in Christ. We are adopted by God through faith in Christ. The root, the root, the root of our faith is Christ. End of story. Now, secondly, we want to examine the fruit of our faith. Because if Christ is in us, the fruit of His grace will be evident in our life. Not perfect, but evident. We aren't saved by fruit. The fruit reveals that we are saved. And we're going to talk about that in more detail next week and emphasize the progressive and growing nature of fruit in our lives and also that we have a part to play in that and also i want to i want to emphasize that we can really jack up our assurance by growing in fruit and progressing in fruitfulness and that is a biblical thing like we can strengthen our assurance if you feel like oh i just feel strengthen that fruit and it will strengthen your assurance but for this morning i want to close and I'm going to be really careful without term closing, but I want to close by saying, <laughs> I really stepped in it last week. It was amazing. <laughs> I want to say again, I realize that there are those who struggle with doubt and insecurity, and they can overexamine themselves and lose sight of Christ in their examination. And so those who, whose faith is rooted in Christ, I want to give this assurance. The warning in this verse, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith, test yourselves, is really for those who are hard-hearted, whose consciences are closed and hard, who are indifferent to conviction, who are smug in their own standing, who are set in their sin. The warning in this is not for those who struggle. It's not for those who are weak. It's not. Isaiah 42, speaking of Jesus Christ, says this, He will not break the bruised reed or snuff out the smoldering wick. In other words, if our faith is weak, maybe banged up, bruised jesus doesn't come along and like a reed that's bruised snap it off 
break it off. That's not his heart. He cares for it and he tends it that it might heal. If our faith, that maybe once in your life, your faith burned bright, there was a fire of faith in your heart for Jesus Christ, but now that fire has, has gotten so low that there's barely any smoke coming off of it. It's a, a smoldering. Jesus doesn't come along and go, Psh. He blows on it tenderly. He guards it from the wind. He, he works with it to get that smoldering, but there's still a ember. He blows on it that it might begin to burn again and flame up again. That, Isaiah 42 is telling us the heart of Jesus to the weak, to the struggling, to the broken, to the smoldering. He's for us. He goes after the straying lamb. So listen, I, as we close this morning, I don't want you to examine yourself with a condemning eye. I want you to examine yourself in the light of Christ's love and mercy and ask Him to deepen your roots in the holy faith of Jesus Christ. Deepen your roots in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And grow your life in the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, on that day when we stand before You, that judgment day, that the ultimate examination day, we will not offer any plea except Christ. We will not offer any excuse, any good work, anything our one plea will be Jesus Christ. And we thank You so much that Your Word promises us that that one plea is more than sufficient. That we will be free on that day from blemish and free from accusation. Oh, the enemy will try to accuse, but not one accusation will stick. For Christ has cleansed us. More than that, he has given us the righteousness of Christ. So we will glow with the righteousness of Christ. And there ain't nothing Satan can say against that. So Lord, we thank you this morning. And I pray that every heart here is rejoicing in the glorious hope that is Christ alone. And Lord, I pray that if any are not rooted in faith in Christ, or maybe some have walked away, that they would come back and they would realize the preciousness of Christ. They would heed the sign, the warning sign, and turn and repent and come once again to a holy fear of God. And we ask all of this for your great glory. Now, Lord, as we leave here, I pray that you will use us to help others come to this faith. Lord, let us not be silent and let us not hold it in, but give us boldness and opportunity to share this faith, this holy faith with others and share Jesus with people around us. We ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. God bless you.